0: So in the run-up to a typical conference, year after year, as we get closer, people always want to know, who have you got, who have you got? And what they mean is like, what's the big name that you're going to offer us? And I always take my time and I lecture them patiently that the whole point about Idea City is that you're going to meet all the people that will eventually become famous, rather than necessarily the people who are famous themselves right now. But then I say, this year, I've got Marie (laughs) Hennet. Whoa! Okay, they let out a low whistle and are impressed because she is today Canada's leading criminal lawyer. In fact, she's probably Canada's most famous lawyer, and that's because of her Stunning victories in two recent uh, high profile front page cases of long duration, and that is her defense of uh, Vice Admiral Mark Norman, uh, recently acquitted, and her defense of Gian Gomeshi. We've been waiting long enough to hear from Marie Hennen.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, Before we started this session, Moses asked me if I would now finally tell him what I was going to talk about, and I said no. (laughs) So now I'm going to tell you, Moses. Uh, The topic of this session is democracy and freedom of speech versus the age of surveillance and disinformation. There are a lot of ideas in that uh, title alone, certainly enough to fill three days of ideas. But I want to talk about the first two of those ideas. Here's the thing, and I know I'm amongst friends. Uh, I admit that for years I had naively taken it all for granted, uh, what we have in this country. The inherent decency of Canadians. I genuinely believe that. We are a non-homogeneous, multicultural country, and at the core of our value system, I believed at least, was fairness and decency and an extraordinary ability to have wildly different views or practices and yet to coexist. It never occurred to me that democracy was a synonym for majority will. I thought that democracy had layers to it. And not for a second did it occur to me that a government elected by the majority of the population meant a government that enforced the will of the majority to the exclusion of minority interests and protections. For me, democracy was imbued with principles of fairness and equity that did away with autocrats and monarchs and protecting the rights of the richest, the loudest, or those who were in the majority. And the truth is that when I started to think about all of this in earnest, I was all of 21 years old, an awfully long time ago, and going to law school for the first time. And at the time I was going to law school, it was in the heyday of charter litigation. The charter was awfully new. It was a baby. And so constitutional rights at the time I was going to school were being tested and defined and growing. In the 80s, our Supreme Court was putting flesh on the bones and clarifying our foundational values as a society. And the truth is that back then, the fights were cleaner. Or maybe that is just wishful thinking on my part. You know, the way that we all look back on something, remove from it all and think, oh, those were the good old days. Maybe it's just a function of my age. But it sure felt that way. There were legal fights about some very foundational and incredibly emotional issues. But here's what happened in this country. Abortion was decriminalized. Gay marriage was legalized. Recently, the right to die was recognized prostitution legalized. And the amazing thing is that all of these things did not mean the catastrophic end of our society as we know it. There was no chest-thumping. There was opposing views that were presented. And in the end, we as a society remarkably moved on, advanced. Some might argue we got better. And the cool thing is that people, even though there was gay marriage, still got to get married. They could go to church They could choose not to have abortions. Because we knew that the recognition of one did not lead to an attack or demise of the other. No one was under attack. No one's values systems or beliefs were under attack. All that was happening was that we were recognizing the right that not everyone needs to live the same way. But what happened to that? That fundamental democratic dialogue, the inherent decency of it, The inherent politeness of Canadian dialogue, well, overnight it seemed to disappear as people become more strident. Now look, not all of the credit goes to Trump, truly he is just a symptom of the disease. We really need to get to the cause of the disease, the cause of our divisiveness to figure out a cure. And I'm not sure that switching out political players does anything to cut out the disease. So here's the three things that I noticed happen. The democratic dialogue has been replaced with a digital screaming match. Our ideas of democracy began to unmoor from liberalism, and the concept of democracy was suddenly equated with populism. Or as some authors have called it, we see the rise of illiberal democracy. And thirdly, caught in the eye of the storm were many of the values and freedoms that were so essential to reconcile the success of a democracy with the protection of minorities, of the marginalized, of those who did not have the majority vote. And I think all three of those ideas are interconnected. The democratic dialogue. How do we talk to each other now in a democracy? Well, effective democratic dialogue requires mutual attention and sufficient factual information to make the requisite decision. As one academic posed the question, What do we do when we haven't got sufficient knowledge on a given topic, but are still forced to make decisions on it? And currently, in this climate, we are rarely given information to have a meaningful dialogue. And that is because decision-making now must occur before the next tweet. Time is a commodity. And this means that the time that is required to make evidence-based decision-making is lost. Think a little bit of the context that I work in, the justice system. Get tough on crime policies have spanned the political spectrum. Democrats, liberals, Republicans, conservatives. In fact, the Democrats are responsible for the largest crime bill in United States history. Get tough on crime policies are a go-to move, and even more so in this rapid-fire environment where tweets have replaced this meaningful dialogue. So the the public is falsely told all sorts of complex social problems, no problem we can solve them at the courthouse door. This is not true. It is a lie, you are being told. Evidence has long established that tough on crime policies do not work. Increased incarceration and longer sentences, less rights for the accused, do not make us better or safer. Mm -hmm. The real solutions are social and economic, not criminal. And yet, if there is a crime that has garnered national attention, I promise you there will be a law sure to follow it. There is no pause to discuss the problem that we want to solve, or even the most effective way of solving it. That is because there is no time to dialogue. And so decisions are made without evidence. It becomes a screaming match on morality, on posturing, on anything but the facts. When a politician, and who knows who I'm talking about here in Ontario, disagreeing with a court's decision roars, I am elected and the judge isn't, we should really be aware of what the real play here is. In 1930, only eight out of 22 countries that could be classified as democracies had judicial review. Now, 22 of them do. 38% of countries guaranteed the power of judicial review to a constitutional court in 1951. By 2011, in democratic countries, 83% grant that constitutional review power to judges. And the importance of an independent jury is that in moments of crisis, judges are insulated from the popular and populist will and can protect vulnerable minorities and power grabs by would-be autocrats. This is why when a politician, and who knows who I'm talking about here in Ontario, disagreeing with a court's decision roars, I am elected and the judge isn't or when other politicians even more concerning across this country jump on that bandwagon decrying activist judges, we should not only all be concerned, we should really be aware of what the real play here is. Delegitimizing the legal system and consolidation of power. That's what it's about. All under the guise... that this one elected official is the true voice of the people. That's a scam, friends, a complete and utter scam. Snake oil. Mm -hmm. Democracy is being equated with majority will on all issues. This is the populism or populist democracy we're seeing rising in rapid fire in Europe, in the United States, and in Canada. It seems as though we are at war with liberal democracy. And it's interesting to see that in a polling of millennials, one-third of millennials in the United States said that they valued majority rights over individual rights. That's the populist seepage, seepage that has been going into the left and right. Do not be mistaken or fooled. The idea that we have now of taking offense as our go-to move, that the will of the majority is the only thing that matters, that safe spaces are equated with not hearing opposive or even, uh, opposing or even offensive ideas, it's as though everyone believes we have rights. It's just that some should be more than others. It's Orwellian. The current successes of authoritarian populism turn on a careful manipulation of fear appealing to those members of the community who see their power eroding or who seek some sort of explanation for their suffering. Populism offers an answer to those who are feeling threatened or feel they're being treated unfairly in our society or feeling that they're not getting their due or not being heard. And so what this group sees is a minority and they're clamoring for individual rights, threatening to erode everything that they hold dear. And if only the majority will was enforced, they think, then everything would be so much better. But that is fear. And when you are afraid, you look for someone to blame. When you are afraid that you are struggling because the economy is not doing well, or government policies are impacting you negatively, or the economy has changed and you've been replaced by a computer, no politician wants to tell you that. Because if they do, they will have to provide a solution, which is awfully hard. So it's easier to pick a boogeyman to blame, build a wall, an immigrant. That is how the language of fear finds its way into the democratic conversation. And you begin to believe that yes, minority and individual rights are eroding my majority rights to thrive. So you have politicians of all political stripes trading on this idea of fear, fear of being unsafe, fear of a drug epidemic, fear of terrorists, fear of immigrants, you name it. And this leads me to my final point. The importance of speech in this environment when our values are under such an assault. When you are gripped by such fear, no matter how irrational a fear is, simply telling people to calm down or stop being silly does nothing to make the boogeyman go away. What it does is it stokes fear and creates a dissonance in the conversation. Fear is such an easy button to push particularly when we are failing to offer a counter-narrative, to effectively convey another point of view. And liberal moral outrage is not a counter-narrative. It is just more yelling. It is like telling somebody having a panic attack to just calm down and listen. It won't work. We need to figure out a different way to quell the collective panic that is driving us as a society in the wrong direction and to liberal values such as freedom of expression, a long fought for freedom, has been handed over to those who are anti-democratic. Those who have spouted offensive speech have cleverly manipulated ownership of the conversation and been positioned stunningly to stake the moral high ground as though they are the defenders of free speech. And this allows them to shape the narrative. They are the defenders of free speech. They are the voice of the average person and the representatives of the majority. It is not true. It is an absolutely false narrative. But liberal thinkers have ceded the strategic ground. You have been outplayed. The net result is that we have created echo chambers where we can hear our own views bouncing around the walls all around us and comfortably siloed in our own world, hearing our own views only, not being challenged, we lull ourselves into thinking that everyone agrees with us or that those who don't are just foolish or stupid or don't really matter. But if the US election taught us anything, if the current political climate teaches us anything, it is that just because you don't want to hear it doesn't mean it isn't being said or that it isn't being heard by others. And that is extremely dangerous. So unless we are prepared to step out of our silo and engage rather than be offended, even with the most objectionable of ideas, they will continue to be unchallenged and find a very receptive audience. You know, one can be devoutly committed to free speech without advocating, buying into or accepting the nature of the offensive speech. That is because one of the many values of free speech in a democracy is that it exposes the wrong thinking and intolerant views to light, and subjects those views to an important counterpoint. It is part of our diversity, the beauty of this country, because diversity is actually not a Catholic indulgence. Diversity is no indulgence at all. It's actually a necessity. More than that, it's a reality it's you and it's me, it's a Kyrene Canadian who becomes a lawyer on a stage at this incredible conference, it is as democratic as anything, but it is not an indulgence. The thing that breathes breathes life into democracy is ideas, ideas that are expressed and that are shared in a respectful, fact-based, and thoughtful way. So democracy, you might say, can only thrive in a city of ideas. Thank you. For more information about Idea City, find us online at ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube.com slash Ideacity.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.